Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1015. As we continue making our way through Peter's first letter, one of the things that we've seen previously is that sometimes it's challenging to divide this book into distinct units. And we've come to another instance of that today. The next three paragraphs of this letter go together. And so we could try to cover them all at once, which I think would probably be too much. Or we could try to take each of them individually, which I think wouldn't be quite enough. So instead, we're going to try and divide it into two parts over the next couple of weeks. And as we do that, we're going to find Peter's instructions for our relationships with one another in the church as well as his guidance and instructions for how we are to respond to conflict and persecution. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up this morning by reading verse 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so over the last few weeks, Peter has been explaining what it looks like uh, for, for believers to live their lives as God's new covenant people, and particularly with an emphasis on, on conducting ourselves honorably inside of the watching world so that our lives give credibility to the gospel. Right? And so he has discussed how we should act as citizens in relationship to the government, as employees in our workplace, and then also as spouses within marriage. And now as we pick up again here in verse 8, whatever has or hasn't applied to various people uh, over the previous instructions, uh, Peter addresses all of them when he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So in other words, these five attributes should characterize our relationships with each other in the church. And so first of all, Peter calls us to have unity of mind. And, and we've discussed this before, but it's always worth reminding ourselves that unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Right? A lot of times people think that for unity to exist, we all have to be exactly the same, and we have to agree about everything. Right? But that's not unity, that's uniformity. Right? So if you think about a football team, when everyone has their, their helmet and their pads and their jersey on, if you back up far enough, you can't tell who's who anymore because they all look exactly the same. They are uniform. But unity does not require uniformity. So you can just think about the relationship that the states have here in our own country. Right? We're not the uniform states of America. We're the United States of America. Right? Texas is very different from New York. New York is very different from Wyoming. Wyoming is very different from Florida. Right, all of these, these states are different. The, the geography is different. The people are different. The, the local laws are different. And yet, each state is united together among a, a common purpose 
that is greater than any one individual state, which is the well-being of our country as a whole. And so in the same way, Christians are not called to be uniform. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is very clear. There are any number of issues and topics that we can agree to disagree over, and yet he still expects us to be united around the common purpose of the kingdom of God and the gospel. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear that the unity of the church in the midst of diversity is intended to be compelling to the world. By nature, birds of a feather flock together. People are, are, are naturally drawn to people who are like them. But in the church, we should have people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, with all different kinds of personal interests and preferences, and yet who all come together under the banner of the gospel. So the, the supernatural nature of the church is displayed, among other things, in its unity amid diversity. And so while we may like different types of songs, or we may prefer different Bible translations, or we may dress differently, or we may have different socioeconomic levels, or whatever the case may be, as long as we agree about Jesus and we're committed to following the scriptures, then we should be willing to welcome and join hands with each other for the cause of the kingdom. We need to have unity of mind. Next, you see Peter calls us to have sympathy, and sympathy refers to feeling with somebody else. Uh, typically, today, we use it in a, in a negative sense when someone is either sad or, or grieving. I have sympathy for that person. But, but really, it involves sharing emotions of any kind with another person. And so the idea here is, is that, that we're called to be in tune with one another. And so you may think of, of Paul's words to the Romans, that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, and we should weep with those who weep. Or, or you may think of his words to the, the Colossians, that when one member suffers, everybody else is suffering with them. Or when one member is honored, all of the other members rejoice with them. Right, when we cultivate sympathy, what affects you affects me. And what affects me affects you. And so we develop deep relationships with each other. And then after that, Peter commends brotherly love. And so we're reminded once again here that, that when we are brought into relationship with God through faith in Jesus, we are also brought into relationship with everyone else who has believed the gospel as well. Right, if we are adopted by God as his children, then that makes us spiritual brothers and sisters. And as with any family, the proper ethic for us to have in our relationship with one another is love. Right, as we always say, we should have a commitment to the well-being of one another that makes us willing to sacrifice for each other's benefit when that becomes necessary. Right, love is not primarily a feeling or an emotion, it's a commitment that makes us willing to be inconvenienced if it makes things better for the other person. And as we've discussed before as well, this, this love is intended to be expressed through church membership, right? I don't really have a way to consistently express brotherly love to, to other believers in Africa or, or in China or even all other believers here in Lumberton, for that matter. Right? But I can consistently demonstrate love for you. And so while we can certainly love anybody as we have the opportunity, we have a particular responsibility, as we do in carrying out all the commands of the New Testament, to the other members of our church. That's the primary context for brotherly love. 
Next, Peter calls us to have a tender heart. And with a tender heart, there's a lot of overlap between the, this and the concept of sympathy. But to take it from a, a slightly different angle, the, the idea is that uh, our hearts should not be hardened towards one another. Right? So, so because there's not uniformity in the church, and because we are still sinful individuals who've not yet been made perfect, living life together in community with one another is inevitably going to give us opportunities to offend each other. Right? I say something that, that hurts you, or you do something that makes me angry. Right? And when that happens, the temptation is to respond with bitterness or rejection. Right? But, but uh, what Peter calls us to here is to be tender-hearted, and what he means is for us to be intentional about forgiving each other and maintaining our relationships. And so if you're a member here at Loeb, is there another member of our church that you need to open your heart back up to? It's something to consider this morning. You don't necessarily have to be best friends with them, and it may be something that you need to pray about. It may be something that you need to talk to them about. But let's be tender-hearted towards one another. Then finally, P- Peter calls us to have a humble mind. And as we've said before, humility is the result of seeing ourselves in light of our sinfulness and God's holiness. Right? Humility comes from having an accurate understanding of who we really are in the grand scheme of things. And when we have that understanding, we realize that, that the world does not revolve around us, which is what we're prone to, to acting like in daily life. And so, in some ways, you could say that humility is, is really the key to exercising the other four attributes in this paragraph. Because when we fail to be humble, our pride will lead us to try to make everything about us, which does not le- uh, lend itself to accomplishing what Peter is calling us to here. But humility will lead us to think about others and what they need, instead of always angling to try to get everything that we want exactly the way that we want it. Humility is a must. So unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These five characteristics will will produce a church culture where we are positioned to make an impact for the Great Commission as we seek to make disciples of Jesus. And really, that's not even to mention that, that when life is hard, and all the more so, especially for Peter's original readers in a context of persecution, we need each other. We need each other. With everything else going on in life, when life is hard enough as it is, the last thing we need to do is to be fighting and arguing with each other. Right? That the church needs to be firing on all cylinders, and so pursuing these attributes will keep us on the right track. And so Peter has given us instructions on how he expects us to relate to one another, and now he's going to turn to address how we should conduct ourselves in the midst of conflict, as we pick up again, beginning in verse 9. He writes, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
And so as we pick up again in verse 9, Peter turns to instruct us on how to navigate conflict, whether that be in the, in the context of persecution or, or simply uh, a personal disagreement. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, this is such standard, ground-level Christian teaching that we really shouldn't have to spend any time on it at all. But we're so bad at it, and it is so important that we do need to spend some time on it. Church, we need to be reminded this morning that followers of Jesus are expected to be peacemakers. We are not to escalate or to extend conflict. When someone hurts us, we are not to hurt them back. When someone insults us, we are not to insult them back. Instead, Peter tells us that we are to bless. We are to pray for the Lord to bless the other person and even to look for ways to be a blessing for them. And then in the second half of verse 9, Peter provides the reasons for this. He says, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And you may remember that Peter has already emphasized this back in chapter 2 in talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. We saw that Christians are called to suffer. It is a responsibility that the Lord gives us at times. And we also saw that the Lord will reward us for our faithfulness in doing so. That obedience to, to the Lord in this life will lead to reward in eternity. And then you see, starting in verse 10, Peter quotes extensively from Psalm 34 to reinforce uh, his point. And, and in this psalm, we see that David emphasizes the importance of not speaking sinfully of intentionally refusing to respond to conflict with violence and actively seeking peace, with the assurance that the Lord watches over those who pursue righteousness, but that he opposes those who do not. And and perhaps just as important as what David says is when David said it. And so if you were to turn over to Psalm 34, you would see in the superscription that, that David wrote this psalm right after a near uh, miss uh, as he was fleeing from King Saul who was trying uh, to kill him. And it was a, a longer story from that. But, but David is on the run from King Saul. And you may remember from, from uh, the book of 1 Samuel that David has multiple opportunities to kill Saul and, and just to be done with it and not have to worry about it anymore. But instead, and inspired by what he writes here in the psalm, David spent years of experiencing difficulty living life on the run because he refused to respond to Saul with violence. And Peter uses his words and example to drive his point home for us here. Of course, as Peter is is fond of reminding us, Jesus himself is the greatest example of this. Even as we saw in Luke, he prayed for the forgiveness of the very people who were torturing and crucifying him. Right? The, the, the only person in human history who did not deserve to suffer suffered more than, than anyone else, and he did it for the very benefit of the people who, were, who did deserve to suffer. Right? Jesus gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can be forgiven and, and reconciled to him and given new life by trusting in him. And so this morning, you may be at church for the very first time, and if you don't get anything else, you need to get this. Jesus Christ loves his enemies. 
It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve to receive for our rebellion against the God who created us. So that if we will repent of our sin and place all of our trust in what Jesus has done to save us, we can be saved. And the only reason we can be saved is because Jesus loves his enemies. And he expects us, after believing in him, to reflect his attitude in our own lives. And so Peter reminds us of our responsibility to engage in conflict without retaliating. And now he's going to continue instructing us about enduring persecution as we pick up again, beginning in verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so as we pick up again in verse 13, Peter continues to give instructions for how to handle suffering. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And at first glance, or even at second glance, this may seem to be an odd question, a confusing statement. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Well, lots of people, right? Isn't that one of the main themes of this letter in the first place, is that Peter is writing to encourage a group of believers who, among other things, are experiencing the difficulty of suffering because of their faith in Jesus, And then in the very next sentence, Peter opens up the possibility that we might suffer for righteousness' sake. So what's he talking about here? Well, I think that Peter is building on Jesus' words that we read in, in Luke chapter 16 when he warned his disciples about future persecution. And he said, You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And so in other words, this, in this statement, Peter is, is putting our suffering in eternal perspective, in, in the big picture. Right? Whatever happens now, if we are in Christ, then everything is going to be perfectly fine in the end. We can make another connection with with Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 when he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And again, you you could say, well, in the short term, lots of people. And and certainly nobody knew that more than Paul himself. We're already familiar with his ministry resume. But in the, the big picture... In the long run, nobody will ultimately succeed in harming those who God has chosen to bless. And that's what Peter is getting at here. And so in light of this, Peter tells us in the second half of verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, consider Christ, or in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
And he makes a very interesting use of Isaiah chapter 8 here. Uh, just briefly, in Isaiah chapter 8, the northern kingdom of Israel has, has abandoned the Lord and, and judgment has already been proclaimed against them. They are a lost cause at this particular point. But there's still hope for the southern kingdom of Judah if, if they will remain faithful to the Lord. And, and in, in Isaiah chapter 7, the northern kingdom threatens to team up with Syria and to attack and destroy Judah. And as, as word of this plan begins to spread, King Ahaz is terrified, and he has no idea of what he should do. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to Ahaz, and part of his message is found in, in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy." So with a little bit of rearranging, Peter takes this exact statement and he applies it from the Old Testament to the church as we now face uh, threats of persecution from the world. In the same way that Ahaz needed to trust in the Lord to provide for him, we need to trust in Jesus and determine to be obedient to him no matter what. In the middle of verse 15, we see that our obedience to Jesus involves us always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so Peter expects that as we conduct ourselves faithfully as citizens and as employees and in marriage and as a church, we're going to stand out. And and eventually that will lead to people asking questions. And so someone comes up and says, okay, explain yourself. I've been, I've been watching you. I've been watching the way that, that you live. I've been watching the way that you work. I've been watching the way that you relate to your family. I've been watching the way that you keep going despite being mistreated. And I just, I just have to know, why do you do this? How do you do this? And, and when that happens, we have an opportunity to clearly explain the good news of what God has done to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, don't miss that Peter calls us to do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So have you ever tried to convince somebody of something while you're angry with them? We we tend to be pretty blunt to the point but we give up after it doesn't work the very first time and, and we move on with our lives. We really don't care when we get to that point. It's very hard to persuade someone when you're antagonistic towards them. And in a context of persecution, it could be extra challenging to open yourself up to someone who who has been hurting you. And perhaps there would even be a part of you that didn't want this person to believe. So Peter reminds us here that we need to watch not just what we say, but even how we say it. And he reminds us at the end of verse 16 that our consistency will put our opponents to shame. Again, as we saw previously, if we talk the talk and walk the walk, then on the day of judgment, they will have no excuse for having not believed. Then in verse 17, Peter concludes by saying that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. Of course, that may seem topsy-turvy to us, because if I'm going to suffer, I want to have done something to deserve it. And yet, in in the Lord's eyes, no, it's always better to to do the right thing and be willing to suffer for it. 
And I think it's incredibly important for us to, to remember what Peter says here about God's will. Right? The fact that nothing ever happens to us, whether good or bad, that happens apart from God's will. So we may come to seasons in life where, where things seem like they're out of control. And they may be out of our control. But things are never outside of God's control. And God's sovereignty reminds us that he is always working out his perfect plan in all things. And that confidence will enable us to persevere in difficult times. The Lord who brings us to hardship will bring us through hardship. And as we so often sing, when we get to the other side, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. And so in our passage this morning, Peter gives us instructions for our relationships with one another in the church, and he provides further guidance on navigating conflict and persecution. And we see that as we endure suffering in the process of living distinct from the world, we should be prepared to testify about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And Peter gives these instructions because he expects for this to happen. Everything from chapter 2, verse 11 until now has been for the purpose of drawing the attention of the watching world around us and leading them to consider the gospel. And so as we consider the application of our passage to our lives today, when was the last time someone asked you why you're different? When was the last time someone asked you, what's up with you? I think for many of us, perhaps most of us, it probably hasn't happened in a long time, or maybe not even ever. Now, to be fair, as I say that, I do think that we have to factor in that there are certain differences between our modern context and and the context of the first century. While Christianity was radically new and and completely uh, distinct from the rest of Roman society, we, as Americans, have been living in a in a culture uh, where, where society has at least historically functioned with, with a common sense of morality that largely overlaps with the Bible. And so, so there's been less opportunity for such a stark contrast as Peter's original readers would have had. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that there should still be a noticeable difference between genuine discipleship and, and, and superficial morality. And certainly, as as cultural Christianity dies out around us, we should be finding more and more and more that we do stand out from the world around us as we continue to follow Jesus. And so it's worth asking this morning, are you distinct from the world around you? Do, Do your neighbors, your coworkers, your acquaintances see anything different about you that would lead them to ask you what it is that makes you tick? Or have we mostly accommodated the worldliness around us in, in, in most ways and, and blended in with the rest of the world, except maybe for the fact that we go to church on Sunday and we try to avoid the really big, bad sins? It's something for us to consider. And so this morning, let's take the call of discipleship seriously as we live life according to God's design, and let's draw the world's attention to the hope that can only be found in Jesus. Let's pray together.